Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. I'm Avash Kalra, and welcome to Radio Rounds, where you'll hear today's stories told by tomorrow's doctors. Now, coming up on today's show, I'll speak with Miss Susan Blasick-Miller, a litigation lawyer who spends a significant amount of her career representing hospitals, physicians, and healthcare providers as a malpractice defense attorney. I will have doctors sometimes come in and say, listen, I think I screwed up here. I think I made a mistake. This is what I should have done. In those situations, I say, wait a minute, hold on. You might be too hard on yourself, but let's get some other experts to look at it and give us their opinion. Now, if they if they agree, then what we're going to do is look at all the other aspects of the case, and that is, okay, just because you made a mistake, you departed from the standard of care, does that mean you caused the harm that they're claiming? So that's another issue. And then the other issue is, if so, what damages, if any, did it cause? Sometimes it doesn't cause the damage they think it caused. So we have to look at all aspects of the case. Ms. Blasick-Miller shares with us her unique insights into the current medical legal landscape in the United States, and she'll even share with us exactly what she thinks about the term ambulance chaser. That and more, today on Radio Rounds. Welcome again, everyone. I'm your host, Avash Kalra, and I'm so glad you could join us today. Whether you're listening to us on the web, on our website, radiorounds.org, on the radio, or via our free iTunes podcast. Now, we spend a lot of time here on our program talking to physicians, sometimes to leaders in the world of healthcare, and sometimes, and perhaps most memorably to me anyway, even to patients. Now, often we've featured authors and even a couple who have won Pulitzer Prizes. And one time, as some of you might remember from our season four premiere, we even stretched the limits of our global health series by speaking with an astronaut. Today, we'll hear from someone that any physician loves to hear from. That's right, a lawyer, for the first time on this show. But in this case, it's a lawyer who's well attuned to the legal issues that face physicians and patients on an all-too-regular basis. Recently, I spoke with Ms. Susan Blasick-Miller, again, a litigation attorney who practices in Southwest Ohio. Now, Ms. Blasick-Miller has significant experience, specifically as a malpractice defense attorney, representing hospitals, physicians, and healthcare providers in malpractice cases. I started by asking her, what causes a patient or family member to file a frivolous malpractice lawsuit? I've been practicing for 27, almost 28 years, and I can tell you that I've seen the number of frivolous cases drop, particularly with the last round of institution of tort reform for medical malpractice. That has helped to eliminate some of the frivolous cases. But realize, whenever you have an adverse outcome, whenever something happens that's unexpected, unanticipated, you know, the family themselves might not think they want to file a lawsuit, but they have friends and they have other family members who kind of push them in that direction. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes they get to a lawyer, and, you know, I will say that I would rather refer a friend or an acquaintance who thinks they might have been the victim of malpractice to a good quality medical malpractice lawyer who's going to look at the case and say yes or no, you don't have a case, mm-hmm. then someone who really doesn't know what they're doing. Because if they get to someone who doesn't know what they do, they're doing, then some of these people get strung along and think they have a case and they really don't. And those are the frivolous cases we see. But the one thing I want to tell you, your listeners is a case can't get to trial. In fact, it, can, it will be dismissed by the court on its own if the plaintiffs, the people bringing the case, don't have a physician to support it. 
And, you know, you've heard about these affidavits of merit, merit that are part of the tort reform where mm-hmm. they're supposed to have an affidavit from a doctor when they file the lawsuit. But even beyond that, they have to have a physician who's willing to come into court, and that's not always the same person who signs the affidavit. They have to have a doctor come into court and say, yes, I believe Dr. So-and-so fell below the standard of care in this way, and this is what caused the injury or the death mm-hmm. to Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. And so as much as people always want to blame lawyers, it's doctors as well. And I've seen some doctors say some incredible stuff. I had a case where a woman had multiple plastic surgeries, including breast reduction. And she was claiming that her breasts were asymmetrical. Well, she had signed a very detailed three or four page consent form detailing all the risks. And one of the risks was asymmetry. Yet Mm -hmm. they found a doctor from Florida who came up here to testify and said that, yes, asymmetry of the breast is a risk of the procedure, but her breasts were so asymmetrical that this was beyond any risk. This was clearly the result of negligence. Hmm. Now, they lost in trial, but because they had a physician who was willing to say that, they were able to get to the courtroom and make their case. Are there safeguards in place to sort of prevent something like that from happening? I mean, you you did sort of touch on the fact that there's been tort uh, reform in that regard, but uh, if you could elaborate on that. There's been tort reform, and some of the safeguards of tort reform is if you want to file a lawsuit, you have to produce an affidavit from a physician saying that the physician departed from the standard of care. And so the thought is if you have that, people aren't just going to file a lawsuit without having a physician review it first to say there's some merit to it. Mm-hmm. Well, you can get an extension of that time for various reasons. So sometimes you still get to file it and you have 90 days to get that affidavit. They don't get the affidavit and it gets dismissed. So that's one safeguard. Another safeguard is that the person who's going to testify against the doctor has to be competent. So they have to devote at least three-fourths of their professional time to the active clinical practice or teaching of medicine. But again, that's professional time. And if someone's professional time is 20 hours a week and then they devote half or three-fourths of their time, you know, you do the, the calculations, it can be small amounts of hours that they devote to teaching or practice of medicine. But even still, we see people with good credentials who testify a lot, who make a lot of money, and sometimes some of the things they say are borderline in terms of the the truth of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the problem is the standard of care isn't written down anywhere. You know, although ACOG, for example, puts out standards and American College of Radiology puts out standards and guidelines, those are only part of it. And you can still have someone come in and say, yes, that's part of the standard, but in my professional opinion, based on my education, experience, and training, this is what the standard required. And so, yes, there are safeguards in place, but there's only so much those safeguards can do. Ultimately, it comes down to if they have a doctor, it's the jury that has to decide whether this expert is correct or not. You know, we're often taught that communication between doctors and patients and maintaining a good communication is really the best way to prevent um, lawsuits from happening in the first place, even if an error does occur. In addition, uh, documentation is also very important as well, just uh, to keep a, an appropriate record. In addition to those two aspects, what, what other advice would you have for young physicians, medical students listening to the show to keep in mind when they're navigating uh, the early part of their careers to avoid getting into trouble uh, with these sorts of situations? Mm -hmm. 
I guess the, the other thing that comes to mind is where appropriate, don't hesitate to get specialists involved or get advice from other consultants in taking care of your patients because we do see that from time to time where a physician, particularly a younger one, might hold on to a patient a little bit too long and should have sent that person out to someone else. Mm-hmm. Because of that, they didn't, and there was a delay in a diagnosis and delay in treatment as something that a specialist would have taken care of sooner. And so don't be afraid to get that help and send somebody out. You know, I don't want to gloss over the communication issue. That is a mm-hmm. huge issue for mm-hmm. young people, for any physician, um, opening that line of communication, even if it's difficult and even when hard things happen and things you don't want to talk about, keeping open a dialogue with the family can only help you because let's say they still sue you. I truly believe in many instances it reduces the risk that they're going to sue you. But let's say they still go on to see you. And I, I have a case right now where they did. Mm-hmm. They went on to a doctor. And when this stuff happened, it was a complication of the procedure. And this husband even told my client, he said, you don't have to worry about us suing you. We know risks and things happen, and we're not like that. But then they ended up suing. But my client had an ongoing conversation with them, kept telling them, you know, he was concerned, he was worried, and it shows compassion. And that's what jurors want to see in their doctors is mm-hmm. compassion and concern. And when they see that, then it's harder for them to find against the doctor, I think, than if the doctor treats it as, well, this is just business, and I'm not going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. You know, on the other hand, right now I have a case where a doctor had a very serious complication happen after a relatively routine procedure, and, you know, he never went to talk to the patient's family afterwards because he said, my role was done. Well, you can imagine how easy it was for that family to sue him. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how Jerry's going to look at that. I don't think they're going to look favorably at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great advice, really, for for anyone listening uh, to this interview. And I'm curious, actually, if I could just sort of follow up on, on the story that you just told about the physician who who didn't go and talk to the to the patient's family after the procedure. When you are presented with a case like that and and defending a physician, where you think that perhaps the physician was at fault, you know, does that present any sort of, if I should say, ethical issue, but, but you know, is it your place, say, to judge whether or not the physician was actually uh, right or wrong, or, or do you just, as your role defending them, just, just go ahead and defend or try and settle, uh, if, if you know what I mean, if you could comment on that? Sure. I'm glad you asked that question because it's a really good one. My job is to properly defend the physician to make sure he or she gets the best defense possible. Now, what does that mean? It means that I don't make the judgment as to whether he or she departed from the standard of care, but what I do is I send that file out to usually more than one physician, mm-hmm. usually about average is two or three physicians in the same specialty. I don't always tell them what the outcome is. Sometimes I do, sometimes I have to be, but a lot of times I keep the outcome from them, and I say, look at this physician's care as documented in this record, and tell me what you think about his or her care. So I get their opinions as to the care. Then we give them more information, such as deposition testimony, which supplements what's in the record. When I get that information, then I give those opinions to my client and their insurance carrier so that they know what other people are saying about the care. And then between all of us, the doctor, their insurance carrier, and myself, we talk about, well, is this a case where we can defend it or not? And there are cases where... Somebody didn't 
meet the standard of care. I will have doctors sometimes come in and say, listen, I think I screwed up here. I think I made a mistake. This is what I should have done. In those situations, I say, wait a minute, hold on. You might be too hard on yourself, but let's get some other experts to look at it and give us their opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, if they, if they agree, then what we're going to do is look at all the other aspects of the case, and that is, okay, just because you made a mistake, you departed from the standard of care, does that mean you caused the harm that they're claiming? So that's another issue. And then the other issue is, if so, what damages, if any, did it cause? Sometimes it doesn't cause the damage they think it caused. So we have to look at all aspects of the case, which includes cause of death, cause of injury, what kind of damages are out there, and give them as much information as possible so they can make a reasonable decision as to whether they want the case to go to trial or not. Under most, and I will say most, insurance policies, the physician is the one to decide that the case should or should not be settled. Now, the physician doesn't decide if it's going to be settled how much the insurance company should pay, and sometimes the insurance company isn't going to pay enough to settle the case and you still have to go to trial, but the doctor's the one that first makes the decision, yes, I want you to try to settle this case or no, and then we see what happens. So in a lot of situations, my job is really damage control. First, did the person depart from the standard of care? Let's confirm they did. What damage did that cause, if any, and let's try to resolve it. Yeah, and as a follow-up to that, I mean, are, are there specific examples of um, really just surprising or strange even, even um, experiences that you've had, maybe cases that you have been surprised actually uh, made it to trial even? I, I guess I can tell you one where I was surprised at a high verdict, which we weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a client that wasn't particularly likable, was not a good communicator, and we went to trial on a radiology case, and it had to do with missing a pancreatic pseudocyst in a child, as I recall. Anyway, there wasn't much damage. It was a child that had been the victim of some child abuse, and it was in a rural county. And there wasn't a lot of damage, at least that was our argument. And the attorneys who were involved in the case besides myself, everybody thought this was not worth a lot of money. I thought the doctor may lose because, as I said, he was pretty arrogant. We were able to put an expert up. We went to trial, and the jury came back, and I'll never forget, I'm sitting there, and the jur- the verdict was $1,350,000. This kid was still alive. The kid was doing well. I was shocked. It was so shocking that when we came out of the courtroom into the judge's chambers, the judge said, what just happened in there? Mm-hmm because the verdict was outrageous. And actually, the judge has the power to reduce the verdict, and they don't do it very often. And in this case, he reduced that verdict from $1,350,000 down to $135,000. Oh, wow. Which was, yeah. Now, that's quite a reduction, but I'm mm-hmm. going to tell you, before I went into trial, I thought the case was worth 20000 mm-hmm. So that was even still high. And then the plaintiffs, the people who brought the lawsuit, they could appeal that if they disagreed, and they even didn't appeal it because they knew that 135000 was more than it was worth. So mm-hmm. I will tell you, I was shocked. And when I look back at that, the only explanation that everybody could come up with was they hated the doctor so much that he was so arrogant and dislikable mm-hmm. that they found against him. So um, that was a shocker. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, you know, sometimes on television there are commercials 
from whether they're at- attorneys or, or just they'll be listing sort of a, an array of symptoms and asking if you've had them, then you might be due for money or lawsuits um, involvement. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on uh, that sort of approach and, and lawyers in that sense? You know, a lot of this goes along with the term ambulance chaser. I don't know what your thoughts are necessarily on that term. Really, I guess, of your colleagues sort of on the other side of, of what the lawsuits from you. But um, what are your thoughts on, on that approach in general? Well, I guess I, a couple comments. One is it does make me cringe. You know, I'm old enough to remember when attorneys really couldn't advertise on TV and mm-hmm. then it was allowed. And of course, that has evolved to what we have now. And I hate to see it, and it makes me cringe when I'm when I'm home or when I'm somewhere where there's a TV on during the day. You can't help but see tons of lawyer commercials, and some of them are so cheesy. I, like I said, it makes me cringe. I can't. Sure. But I will say that unfortunately, once you have some advertising for these other lawyers who are good, who want to stay in business, they feel they have to advertise it as well. I mean, it's almost just like in political advertising, you know. If you don't advertise and get your name out there, then you're going to lose. And it's it's kind of the same for plaintiff's attorneys. I feel sorry for them because since certain firms have done it, they feel like they have to do it too, and they may not want to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that some of the people who advertise are actually good lawyers who do a good job. And so I can't say that they're not doing a service. They're targeting an audience of people that would be different from who I would target in my business. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's how they feel they have to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just going to sort of close with, with one final question here. You know, really appreciate all the advice and the stories that you've shared so far during the interview. Since a lot of our listeners are medical students, you know, medical students during their third year, um, the beginning of their fourth year, start to go through the decision process about what field they want to go into for residency and for their future careers. And it often comes up uh, in discussions if, say, a student is considering a, a field such as obstetrics, say, for example, or emergency medicine, anesthesia, something where sometimes, you know, we hear stories of, of lawsuits or, or more more than other fields of physicians getting sued and, and they're maybe deterred away from a field because of hearing that. What what would you say to a student like that going through that decision process about how much to factor that into their into their decision making process? I guess I would say not to do it because for one thing, if you think it's something in which you're in, you're interested, the reason you want to do it is you're going to be doing this for another 20, 30, sometimes 40 years. And you have to love what you're doing to do a good job. And you're going to decrease the likelihood of being sued, for one thing, if you're doing a good job. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you're immune, because I see lots of good doctors who get sued. But at the same point, if you don't like what you're doing and you're just going through it to make the money, I don't think you're going to have a satisfying life. And Mm -hmm. all specialties, no matter what specialty you're in, there's going to be some risk. And that's why you have insurance. And, you know, you just... If you do your best and you document and you try to, to um, take good care of your patients and have good communication, then that's the most important thing. And I would never guide what I'm going to do by the risk I'm going to be sued. I just think that's, that's crazy in terms of picking a career. Mm-hmm. 
Sure. Well, I certainly agree, and I'm, I'm glad that you do as well. And I think that our listeners really can benefit a lot from, from hearing your perspective and certainly your thoughts on the medical legal landscape. So, Ms. Blasek-Miller, really appreciate you coming on Radio Rounds today and, and sharing your thoughts. We very much enjoyed having you. Well, thanks. I thought it was a lot of fun, and good luck to all of your listeners. I hope they go out and, and do well and take some of these little tips, especially about the communication and having good relationships where you can with your patients, and, and enjoy what you do. And you're listening to Radio Rounds. That was Miss Susan Blasek-Miller, again, a litigation attorney who has given us some fascinating insight into the medical legal landscape and some of the many intricacies of medical malpractice. Now, I hope you all enjoyed the conversation and, like me, learned something you maybe didn't know before. Now, malpractice is a touchy issue in medicine, and as some of you know, I'm in my residency training right now at the University of Colorado, and without question, it's a topic often discussed among colleagues. Errors, of course, happen, and there's a big push in medicine, a big focus on quality improvement and safety, like we've explored on Radio Rounds this season already. And I assure any listener that the focus of all those efforts isn't so much on preventing lawsuits, it's on making sure that patients are cared for in the best possible way. Now, this is a topic we'll talk more about on Radio Rounds in the future. Now, we're running short on time today, but I'll be back in two weeks when I'll speak with Virginia Hood, the immediate past president of the American College of Physicians. Next week, though, tune in to hear our interview with Maureen Bisognano, CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. She'll share patient stories that inspire her to improve health care for patients everywhere. Of course, you can and should contact our team at Radio Rounds via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All that information is on our website, radiorounds.org, where you can listen to all of our past episodes on demand. These podcasts are also available as free downloads on iTunes. You can just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds. Thanks as well to our entire Radio Rounds team, and of course, our partners as well. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Sponsored by the American Medical Association. Providing group disability and life insurance to students and residents through participating educational institutions. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. In addition, Radio Rounds is proudly partnered with the Student Doctor Network online at studentdoctor.net. Applying to medical school? Learn about life at your choice of medical schools and programs from current and former students. Check out the SDN Medical School Feedback Database at studentdoctor.net. Join us next week on Radio Rounds. Again, radiorounds.org is our website. We love hearing from you, so feel free to interact with us. Until next time, for Radio Rounds, I'm Avash Kalra, bringing you today's stories from tomorrow's doctors.